0: If you're a regular listener to the Van City podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church/give. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in the series James, Forgetting Your Own Face. We tend to prioritize people based on what we believe they have to offer us by status or wealth, popularity, or by personal preferences, whoever is easiest for us to like. But the scriptures consider this an egregious injustice, completely incompatible with discipleship to Jesus. So, what do we do? You know, in recent memory, a uh, famous kind of prosperity, gospel-leaning franchise megachurch got in lots of hot water for all kinds of different things. But one reason that they came under scrutiny was for their alleged VIP section. Apparently, the rich and famous regular attendees at this church, by the way, they were able to reserve VIP tickets to church services while the general lay people, that's all of you, by the way, you were made to wait in line for hours just to sit in coach at church. Or the story goes anyway, who knows? There was predictable outrage over this accusation, but it made me think about other churches, less franchised, less famous, maybe smaller, much smaller, like ours. And I wondered if I knew of any churches where favoritism had found no foothold whatsoever. Is that possible? Go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 2. We are in a summer-long trek through one first-century letter written by a gentleman named Iacobos or Jacob, who was the brother of Jesus of Nazareth, and he wrote to the very first community of Christians in Jerusalem. Would you guys go ahead and stand with me as a gesture of reverence for the reading of Scripture, and let's read from James chapter 2, beginning with the very first verse. He writes, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. These words are inspired by God. Thanks. Go ahead and take a seat. One Saturday afternoon many, many years ago, this is a true story. I was wandering through the food court in the Savannah Mall, when I noticed the crowds. They had gathered upstairs, dozens of them, pushing and shoving, standing on their toes in an effort to behold whatever was on the other side of the writhing mass of uproarious spectators near, you know, Sabaro Pizza. Sabaro? Sabaro? Whatever. I ordered my uh, styrofoam tray of grease drenched yakisoba, and I watched this throng of mall goers part, revealing. None other than Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez themselves in the flesh. That's right. Carrying shopping bags from Belk and the Limited. You guys know about Belk? I don't think you have that here. Or if you do, no one has it anymore, I think. But the Limited, ladies, come on, that was some hip stuff. Anyway... This was a pre-smartphone era, and the cameras that we had on flip phones were so crude and low resolution that hardly anyone was bothering taking pictures. They just wanted to gawk. They wanted to get close. If I just touch the edge of Ben's cloak, I will be healed, they said to themselves. Now, I went home to discover my family watching coverage of this event on the local news. This is not an exaggeration. And uh, when my mom heard about the whole Benifer fiasco, she was disgusted. I remember her saying, I think this is a, an actual quote, I wish that I would have been there just so I could have pretended like I didn't know who they were. <laughs> These are the two standard reactions to the rich by the decidedly less rich. One is hysteria, excitement. I I want to get close. I want to take a picture. And the other is contempt. And for all the anti-rich sentiment to proliferate against, uh, I mean, amongst uh, millennials on social media, when push comes to shove, a lot of us anyway, we want that picture. We want to get close. Here's another story. Again, true story. Sometime around 2005, Uh, My brother Patrick and I were standing on a street corner in Manhattan eating pizza by the slice when none other than, I wish it was Bennifer again. That would be better, but it wasn't. It was Ryan Reynolds. He appeared as if from nowhere, just another New York pedestrian. Now, this was pre-Deadpool, pre-Green Lantern. Heck, this was pre crudes So (laughs) we turned to some of our friends and we said, there went Ryan Reynolds and they looked confused. And one of them said, Van Wilder? Uh, and we said there was no time to talk. You know, it, we had to. We ran after him. We actually ran. And we called out, Ryan, Ryan, like that. If I just touch the edge of Ryan's cloak, I will be healed. And when we caught him, I won't lie to you, uh, we were awkward and weird. I'm not sure why. None of us were really dedicated Ryan Reynolds fanboys. We just recognized him. He was a famous person. And he was, you know, very nice. He humored us. And then we returned to our pizza, smiling, giving each other high fives. Wow, we met that guy from the ninth Amityville horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) Which was the big thing at the time. You know, it's the one right after Amityville Dollhouse. Yeah. What a night it was when we met the guy in the Amityville movie right after Amityville Dollhouse. And now... I don't really remember, but I'm sure that on the same night, I passed any number of strangers, people without homes, panhandlers, you know, shadowy alley-dwelling strangers. It was, after all, late night in New York City, but I don't remember any of them because I remember Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds, who at that time, anyway, meant little to me beyond, hey, I just saw you in a movie, and now you're right here. The author of James... May sound like a curmudgeon when it comes to the rich and powerful, but why wouldn't he? He conducted his entire life poor under the oppression of the rich and powerful, the Roman Empire, who had taxed the Jewish people into poverty, taken from them their homes and their land and their livelihoods. And he had grown up also steeped in the Hebrew scriptures that cover to cover warn against the corrupting idolatry of wealth. And now, He had become a disciple of his brother Jesus, who famously warned that it is almost impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God were it not for the great mercy of the Father who makes such an incredible thing possible. And Jacob, the author of James, it stands to reason, would not have clamored for the photo op with Benifer. But who knows? Maybe he would have been a fan of Geely, you know, the one. But Nobody remembers that movie? That's fine. Look it up afterwards. But his writing here leads scholars to believe that favoritism or you know, the preferential treatment of the rich and powerful had become somehow a big problem amongst those first Christians in Jerusalem. They, they were the take a picture of Bennifer variety. They were the Chase Ryan Reynolds types, infatuated with status, uh, with wealth and position and prestige. And apparently, just as it is today, those with wealth and celebrity would occasionally find their way into the church. And these poor, uh, doting Christians couldn't help but award these special people special attention. And James takes this very seriously because giving special attention based on wealth and status is something that God never does. James grew up reading passages like this one from the Torah, which says, Yahweh, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. He shows no partiality. He accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, the lowly, in other words. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. In his commentary on this passage, theologian Douglas Moo, yeah, I know, every time I say the name out loud, it sounds funnier. He writes this, a favoritism based on external considerations is inconsistent with faith in the one who came to break down the barriers of nationality, race, class, gender, and religion. You see, Jacob, the author of James, summarizes this from the outset when he writes this, quite simply, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. This is actually huge because in that single sentence, uh, Jacob, the brother of Jesus, affirms what in theology speak, we would call a rad- radical Christology. He describes Jesus as glorious, and then he uses the same exact Greek word that my Bible translates as Lord, Which is the same Greek, or the same word used in the Greek Old Testament to describe Yahweh, the one true creator God. And then he calls Jesus the Christos, which means the Messiah, Israel's long awaited anointed king. He's the glorious Jesus God over everything. He's the Messiah. So Jacob is invoking the position and authority of Jesus to call on God's people to repent of the egregious sin of favoritism. In short, God does not demonstrate any favoritism of the rich, so neither should we. God is not impressed by money or earthly seats of power or privilege. If anything, God is uniquely concerned for the poor. He is not distracted by the rich. And if you're going to emulate something, emulate that, Jacob writes. And Jacob isn't bitter or vengeful, but there was a complicated strain between the rich and the poor in first century Jerusalem. Before the famine had hit Jerusalem, many poor Jewish landowners had already been taxed out of their land and their farms and their property by the wealthy Roman oppressors. But then when the famine hit, things got much worse. It was a sort of the rich got richer and the poor got poorer situation. And most of Jacob's readers were probably amongst the poor agricultural laborers that were hit particularly hard by the famine and by the prosperity of the rich. And on top of all that, these new disciples of Jesus are facing new persecution on the grounds of their Christianity, their faith in Jesus. Douglas Moo writes, judicial proceedings against Christians on financial grounds may have been motivated by and combined with scorn for their faith. So not only have they been taxed into poverty, oppressed by the rich, they're actually being dragged to court by the rich on top of that. So it seems like James or Jacob, the author of James, is kind of throwing his hands up and saying, guys, guys, this is absurd. Why? Why are we showing preferential treatment to the rich? It's wrong on every level. It's an overwhelming, egregious violation of our discipleship to Jesus. But on top of that, they're the ones stealing our farms and hauling us in and out of court. And you guys are in a hurry to give them the good seats at the expense of the poor? Are you serious? Favoring the rich over the poor does not keep what Jacob calls the royal law, which is a really clever way of referencing the Torah, or law, which is the Hebrew scriptures, but in light of Jesus' kingdom of God ethics, that is, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. You either live this way or you don't, he argues. There's no disobeying one part of love God and love others and not all of it at the same time. If you don't do it, you don't do it. And then at the, ver- at the end of verse 13, you get this really perplexing statement, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Jeez, yikes. And then mercy triumphs over judgment. So which which is it? There's actually two ways to translate this. The first is that when Jacob writes the line, mercy triumphs over judgment, he intends to contrast two attributes of God's character, God's mercy and God's judgment. And he points out, that God rejoices in demonstrating mercy even when judgment is more appropriate because that's who God is. That's the kind of person God is. That's the first way of reading it. The second way is that Jacob is writing about human mercy, meaning if you be merciful, you will not be judged. Mercy triumphs over judgment as in it clears away the condemnation that would await those who are not merciful. My personal take Both are true concurrently. God's mercy does outweigh his judgment. That's not me. God says that himself about himself throughout the scriptures. But judgment is a real thing, and by being merciful, we will avoid the condemnation due to those who are not merciful. So in both ways, mercy triumphs over judgment in in that God rejoices in being merciful and that we avoid judgment by being merciful. But if you think the warning against judgment is too hardcore, keep reading James chapter two. It's about to get worse. Look at this, verse 14. What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered by righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James, like all the authors of Scripture, takes for granted that discipleship to Jesus is evidenced by a life of outward action, not just an inward disposition That to say, you will know a disciple of Jesus by examining them for a life that reveals a love for God and a love for other people. Not perfect by any means, but the evidence will be there. On the other hand, if someone's life indicates a complete absence of love for God or for other people, it's like a tree that bears rotten fruit in Jesus' language. Such a person is not a disciple of Jesus. And listen, I'm absolutely aware that this grates against our sensibilities. You know, in our culture, judge is about as profane as a word gets. But the truth is that everyone judges in the sense that we all make observations and assessments about the character and morality and even beliefs of other people. And that's not innately wrong. When you read, for example news stories about parents who abuse their children, you rightly assess that is not right. That person is unfit to care for that child. Something should be done to rectify that situation. Those are all judgments. So there are times in conversation when I'll hear some people discuss, uh, you know, a famous personality, a politician or a celebrity or whatever, and someone will say, oh, I've heard that they're a Christian, or they say that they're a Christian, or just they are a Christian. And someone else will say, that, no, they're not, and then someone else will say, well, hey, it's not our place to judge. Only God knows their hearts. And while it's true, God certainly knows more than we do about any given person. Jesus actually encouraged his disciples to examine the lives of those who claim to follow Jesus and determine whether or not they're actually lying. By their fruit, you will recognize them, he said. In other words, the real evidence for what one believes is in what they do, how they live, not just what they say they believe intellectually. Last week, I read this intense quote from scholar Scott McKnight. He said, sensitive theologians are sometimes nervous about the way Jesus talks. And sometimes we need to exercise a special caution, but we need to trust Jesus said what he wanted. No one is saved by works, of course, but everyone is judged by works because works are the inevitable life of the one who surrenders to, trusts in, and follows Jesus. You can avoid these texts if you wish, but anyone who has spent much time with judgment texts in the Bible knows that the Bible teaches that our final destiny is determined by works. We may be saved by faith, but we are judged by works. Every judgment seen in the Bible is a judgment of works. Abby and I got married uh, more than 14 years ago. And there was a ceremony, vows, we signed the, you know, legal papers, it was a whole thing. Now, imagine that immediately following said ceremony, we both moved into different houses, no longer shared life in any meaningful or intimate sense. We remained loosely acquainted. Uh, maintained generally positive disposition toward the other, but we didn't live together, we didn't spend our days together, we didn't make a family together, we didn't share our decisions or our struggles or our finances or our bodies or our hearts or our minds. Maybe someone would see that situation and accuse us of not actually being married at all. Not really, anyway. But I could point to the certificate. I could show them photos of the ceremony. There was a moment in time when we said to each other, I want to marry you. And there was cake. (laughs) But maybe any person who knew anything about marriage would tell me that certificates and cake do not equal a marriage covenant. When a person is married, anyone who actually gets to know that person will probably learn this of them within moments of any real conversation and certainly within moments of any real relationship. I answered an email this week about travel plans by saying, let me talk to my wife about those dates. Now, if that guy I was talking to, who I don't know at all, didn't know I was married before, he does now because I set my plans in the context of my relationship with Abby, it comes up inevitably almost right away. Nearly every contestant on Wheel of Fortune reduces their entire biography to, I have a lovely wife named Tina and two beautiful daughters, or whatever it is that they say. I am like, is that required of them to say that? Just once, I'd like them to say like, oh, was happy Tuesday, hanging out, you know, or whatever. If someone actually follows Jesus, other people will know. Not based solely on what they say, but on the way they order and conduct their lives together with what they say. Because we're more than just intellectual belief. Human beings are complicated. Intellectual belief, mental assent, no more equals genuine faith than temptation alone equals sin. You can be tempted and not sin. James wrote that earlier. And you can have intellectual belief and no real faith at all. And unfortunately for those with one and not the other, the actual lived faith is the only substantive expression of discipleship to Jesus. I'm not making this up. Read the New Testament. It's all over the place. This is really difficult for us to understand because in our culture and in our tradition, the concept of faith has been reduced to a colloquialism for intellectual belief without incontrovertible proof. So it means that we believe something even if we can't know for sure. We have faith that our friends will show up when they said they will. We have faith that our scientific theories are sound, even if we don't have metaphysical proof. And we have faith that God exists or that Jesus is Lord. But the New Testament term faith always braids together belief with a way of living entirely consistent with that belief. Believing in your mind that Jesus is who he says he is, believing in your mind in the God of the Scriptures, it's of no real consequence. In and of itself, it evidences no authentic allegiance or relationship or faith whatsoever. And Jacob, the author of James, has this hilariously snarky way of putting it when he says, oh, you believe in God? Great, so do demons. Big deal. Who cares? That is worthless. For Jacob, all of this, the struggle against favoritism, these misconceptions about wealth, the temptation to scramble after more at the expense of the poor and justice, real concern for those in need, this sickness that had infected the church in Jerusalem, it's about so much more than just being rich or being poor. It's about authentic discipleship to Jesus. So how can we situate this within a context and paradigm that makes sense for where we are, our time and place, our lives, our church? You know, we actually planned these series way in advance, and the team of us sat down and we went through the letter that we called James months ago. We made notes all over a whiteboard before the series ever began. And I remember as we talked it all out passage by passage, we I was wondering already about the favoritism passage. Um, I'm one dude, obviously, I don't presume to know each and every issue affecting our church on a communal or personal level, but I feel as if I have a, you know, at least a, a general read of where we're going and how we're feeling and the kinds of things that are affecting us. But in my narrow experience anyway, I have never noticed any celebrities waltz into the Sunday gathering, and get escorted by our deacons to their own VIP section. If you're doing that, knock it off. You need to repent of your sin and talk to Cam afterward. Of course, we do have a wide socioeconomic spectrum represented in the room, and our struggles with generosity and financial stability as a church, they're well publicized. We talk about them openly all the time. The question of true faith over intellectual belief, that's for everyone. That's easy. You can make a teaching out of that. We talk about that all the time. But favoritism? Here's a couple of stories. At one point in our church's six-plus-year history, someone came to me and said they had decided to leave. Now, people leave churches. It happens. People have, over the years from time to time, come to us to say why. You can probably guess at and even relate to a lot of those reasons. Some are totally fine. They make a lot of sense. They're moving to a different city or um, they are changing jobs, that kind of thing. Some reasons aren't so great. There's falling out with the community or there's a spiritual crisis or there's deconstruction or there's personal offense, you name it. That all happens too. And when this person decided to go, there were, of course, lots of different factors, lots of different contributing reasons, some obvious, some subtle But that person pointed out that they didn't feel as if I, Josh, had taken a proper interest in them. Now, knowing that you aren't perfect, contrary to popular belief, is no excuse for bad behavior. But believe me, I am well aware of my own shortcomings and my default response to being accused of screwing up in pastoral ministry is more often than not, I'm sure you're right, but what did I do? So... We were uh, planted by a megachurch with quasi-celebrity leadership, and I saw all of this, what I felt was detestable, you know, fawning and doting, and I naively assumed that since we were going off to start our own tiny little celebrity-less neighborhood church with nobodies for leaders, that we'd kind of leave any partiality back at the mothership. But what I've learned from myself and from others is that we have all sorts of reasons for favoritism that go well beyond fame and fortune. A while back, I sat down with my spiritual director, and I told him about the person who'd left the church, and I told him about stories like that one to come and go over the years. Now, this guy's been a pastor for many decades, and he told me this happens at any church you can imagine, regardless of size, regardless of who's in charge. And he said, what we're after as people, all of us, is knowing others and being known by others. We, as human beings, want connection. Now, this is no secret. This is not a uniquely Christian idea. It's well-documented in neuroscience, social studies, and in theology and Scripture. But we, in our brokenness, we tend to assign unique, qualifying values to knowing and being known by certain people of our choosing, I don't tell stories about the random, ordinary people I met in New York back in 2005 because I don't remember them. I remember shaking hands with Ryan freaking Reynolds, star of the ninth Amityville horror movie. Now, in a church context, we kind of fan the possibilities of connections out like cards on a table— based on our own subjective value structures. Maybe, for example, we think it would be cool to know someone like Kyle Oxford, who goes to Fan City. He does tattoos for a living. Do you know that? Can you imagine such a thing? And he's building a skate park behind his shop. Cat's out of the bag. Man, that sounds like a lot of fun. And maybe we think, oh, if we knew that guy, we would get something out of it. His coolness would rub off on us, or we'd get tattoos for cheap, or we'd get to skate on his ramps, if you care about that sort of thing. Or maybe who you really want to be friends with is Jan. Jan is famous for her kindness and her wisdom, and we want what she has to offer us. She's been around the block. She knows stuff. Or maybe we're musicians, so we want to know Levi, because Levi leads the band, he plays guitar, he must know a lot about music, he's so talented, we want some of that to rub off on us. Or maybe we figure the real cash value of church is not so much in knowing and being known, but knowing and being known by the leadership, whoever they are. Now in all my years of pastoring, whenever I've talked to anyone who feels as if someone in leadership, usually Cam, not me, hasn't made a significant effort to know them well, I've yet to ever hear of anyone troubled by their own failure in getting to know that leader. It's an objectifying experience because church leaders are also people, shocker, who need the same sense of knowing and being known, and yet virtually every pastor that I've asked has stories about the people who spoke up to voice their disappointment. You didn't say hi enough. You didn't ask me how I was. You didn't speak to me at length enough or whatever, but the offended party never said hi to that leader, never asked how that leader was, never spoke to that leader at length. The person that reached out to tell me they were leaving, they told me they loved their Van City community, that the relationships they had with others in the church were deep and meaningful and that they loved the gathering, they loved the family, but they didn't feel as if certain people in leadership had taken a deep enough interest in them. There had been no animosity, no conflict. In fact, there was friendliness, there was consistent good-natured interactions, but even with an allegedly vibrant community life and a sincere affection for the community, even with a good rapport with leadership, they wanted out. Arielle is our deacon of people care. She is an incredible asset to our team, beloved member of our family. Here's an abbreviation of how she joined our leadership team. Years ago, Arielle shows up to church and she starts participating. She volunteered to serve. She made herself available. And we recognized that it was happening over time, that she was already leading by serving the church. So we simply came along and asked if she would consider doing so within the official office of deacon. And she said that she would. But Arielle would later tell me that though she'd been present and participating at Van City for a long time before ever taking on the role of deacon, some things changed after the fact. There were new questions for her. Some people behaved a bit differently. Someone even called her a Van City celebrity. Now, if you're listening to this on the podcast, having never been here, let me just point out that there's like a few dozen people in this room—literally a tenth of the megachurch minimum on our best day. That's how strange such a thing is. Chris Pratt has yet to accept my routine invitations to attend. (laughs) Chris, if you're listening, we would love to have you. I'm very serious. So what makes us prefer one person over another? What makes us select certain people for certain expectations or to assign unique values to those people based on what they can do for us? Why did I chase Ryan Reynolds without really being much of a fan at the time or with any real reason to bother him at all. Each of us is designed for community. That's, again, not a uniquely Christian value. This is what we know about human beings, but we also know that we're broken. We can, left to our own devices, reach for connections that we believe are more beneficial to us rather than for the more complicated and seemingly less glamorous effort to simply know others and be known by them. Heck, you could be an invested member of this community for years without you or me knowing what the other does with their time on Saturday evening. Does that matter? In fact, only one guy here named David knows what I do every Saturday evening because he sees me (laughs) climbing the steps to the noodle bar at about 5.30 every week to pick up the same exact takeout order for my family. Because if you live in Vancouver, this is a real gripe of mine, you ready for this? If you live in Vancouver, your options for decent relatively inexpensive takeout food if you're vegan is uh, Thai food. That's it. (laughs) Thai food. About a half dozen Thai restaurants per square mile. So anyway, cat's out of the bag. If you see me at Noodle Bar on Saturday night, leave me be. I'm not at work. Obviously, I'm kidding. But anyway, the other week, this is also true. The other week, without planning it at all, I pull up at the noodle bar, same time every Saturday night, pick up that takeout, and I see Cam getting out of his car to go in there to get his takeout. And I figured maybe things are getting too predictable. We need need a new routine here. My point is that we tend to prioritize the connections that we prefer. And when we do that, we inevitably bypass the connections God has already made available to us. I'll be real with you guys, I moved here uh, more than a decade ago from Georgia, and one of the reasons we came was to be part of the church that ended up planting our church. Now I had no, absolutely no aspirations to, you know, uh, for a future in church leadership. I didn't even think such a thing was possible at the time, wasn't on my radar. I just heard a guy online, I liked the sermons, and I figured that must be a nice church, and that was one of the reasons that we moved out here. It's a very thin motivation, but it got me here. And I was a fanboy. I said, I showed up to church and said, hey, does a leader's like a fanboy? And everything. But Abby and I, we made a pact. This is a true story. We talked to each other. Didn't know anyone here. It was just us. Uh, and neither of us was super gregarious by nature, but we said, man, let's just go for it. Let's say hey, let's pitch in, let's accept invitations if they're given to us, let's invite people over, and let's really go for it. So we did. We signed up to vacuum the floors after the gatherings on on Sunday night. And we did this for months and we met other people vacuuming the floors, grunts like us. One of them is still a very good friend of mine. He's uh, over here, Josiah. Remember when we used to vacuum the floors together with the big back ghostbuster backpacks, fancy vacuum cleaners. Good times. And we did. We accepted invitations and we hosted new people that didn't look like us or sound like us or like the same kinds of things because we figured, look, this is our chance to make a real go of this community thing. And we ended up in a small group that we didn't pick where we didn't know a single person. And some of those people are still our close friends to this day. But we went all in. Months turned into years, and it was as bumpy as you'd expect, highs and lows, beautiful moments, painful moments, wonderful seasons, difficult seasons, the same kind of thing you inevitably have in relationships with human beings, but now I can see that if we had looked out on that crowd of more than a thousand people and went digging for the people who looked like us or had similar tastes or even similar seasons of life, the people who seemed like they wouldn't annoy us or contradict us, or the people with similar values and interests, if we had gone after the leadership or skipped over the seemingly difficult people for the seemingly rewarding people, honestly, we would not be here. All of that was one of the most important formative times in my discipleship to Jesus. Anyone who has experience listening to the Holy Spirit or in things like prophecy, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, they will tell you this. The Holy Spirit does not care whether or not you feel like the person with whom he's asked you to speak is a good fit for you. He will ask you to talk to perfect strangers He will ask you to talk to people at church you haven't met. He'll ask you to talk to people that are mad at you. He will ask you to talk to people that you don't get along with. He'll ask you to listen to people that have hurt you. He will ask you to listen to people that you know are imperfect, who frustrate you with their imperfections. And he will ask you to talk to people you believe are above your pay grade and thus intimidating, or people that are below your station. In the early season of our church, there was someone around at the time with whom I had, quite frankly, a very difficult relationship. And they came to me one evening after the gathering and aware of the tension between us, they said, look, I know this is weird, but I feel like maybe God's spirit told me something for you. You take it or leave it. This is what I got. They spoke and it was a powerfully convicting word that I remember vividly word for word to this day, deeply affecting. When we objectify people and relationships into systems of arbitrary priority based not on healthy things like, you know, prioritizing important family and friendships, but rather on whether or not the person is deemed worthwhile, what they have to offer us. We can overlook or even bypass what the Spirit intends to do for others through us. But when we open ourselves to the direction of God, to know others and be known by others, regardless of our preferences or their status, we teach ourselves more and more every time to value and validate the image of God in every person. Blessing without expectation or agenda affirming the image of God in others teaches us to recognize the image of God in others. And in doing so, the image of God in us comes more into focus over time. The true self, the beloved. For me personally, again, I've yet to witness a rich or famous person have the red carpet rolled out for them at Van City at the expense of those who are neither rich nor famous. But I know as well as anyone that we do pick and choose. Now, I am not saying that we shouldn't prioritize certain relationships in certain ways. My wife and my kids get priority over everyone else. My very close friends get priority over my acquaintances, and my church gets priority over other churches, whatever. You are one person. There's only so much relating one person can do. But we pick and choose. I know another couple who left another church angry. They had been there for almost two years, But though they showed up nearly every single Sunday, they didn't join a small group, they didn't introduce themselves to anyone, they didn't serve in any capacity, and they left angry two years after showing up because they didn't feel like they'd made any connections and because the pastor hadn't invited them over for dinner. Rejecting favoritism is about much more than your very real human need to know others and be known by them. It's about justice and equity and loving other people. These people that left they had something to give the church. I know for a fact that they did, because everyone does. But they sat and they waited for the church to give to them according to their terms, and they left frustrated when it didn't. They wanted dinner at the pastor's house. But how many Sundays was there someone sitting right next to them that needed dinner at their house? Jacob, the author of James, seems so deeply offended by the idea of the rich being escorted to special seats while the poor are made to sit on the ground because it disobeys Jesus, it's an injustice to the poor, and because the disposition of favoritism itself is corrupt deep down we somehow think the person on stage, the person with the most followers, the connected person, the well-off person, the person on TV, the popular person, is somehow more valuable, that their presence is more meaningful, that they have something we want. We want to be close to it. We want to bask in its glow. But Jacob argues that we all show up to life poor and we all leave it poor. Wealth, in his words, is destroyed. But poverty... Poverty humbles because it creates need. It creates vulnerability. It draws the poor closer to God in their desperation and neediness. And such a person has a spiritual gift to give to those with, with much who often struggle to comprehend God. Ask anyone who spent any real time with very, the very poor doing justice work and they will tell you this is true. What does it mean for us to, us to cast off preferences and partiality however they manifest in our lives and the sincere and uncorrupted effort to truly know others and allow ourselves to be known by them maybe the place to be known is already right here it just didn't look the way you thought it would or maybe you're afraid or maybe you're hesitant and maybe you have as many good reasons as bad ones but i do know this that is the only way to follow jesus with other people. And he does not favor one of us over the other, so we can't either. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to lead us into a deeper sense of intimacy with God and with each other. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.